What a joy it is to be here with you all. Um, yeah, the Williams are so kind. They've hosted us. It's been great to hang out with the boys, playing games, getting schooled in football uh, this weekend. Um, and greetings from Louisville. Greetings from my church, Sovereign Grace Church of Louisville. Um, like Matt has said, we're part of a family of churches, and uh, it's not just some cliche, it's not a fraternity, it's, it's a bona fide, legitimate thing. We love uh, being in fellowship with other like-minded, gospel-centered churches, and uh, it is a joy to be here with you this morning. So, uh, this morning's uh, sermon is going to be found in Galatians, so if you have a Bible, or a Bible app, go ahead and turn it to Galatians. We're going to be in chapter 4, and we're going to be looking at verses 4 through 7. Verses 4 through 7. Let's read, pray, and dig in. This is the Word of God. Kindly addressing us this morning. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. May God bless the preaching of his word. Let's pray. Dear God, we are so grateful to be under the banner of your love and your grace this morning. Lord, we need you. We need you. We gather together because we need you. We need the gospel. We need to be reminded and stirred within our souls the good news of Jesus and dying for us, for our sins. Lord, we need your love to stir our affections, not only for you, but for one another, Lord, that we would not be insular, Lord, but we would be looking upward to you, to Calvary, to our neighbor. Lord, would you please, by your spirit, work mightily during this time. It is your word. It is your word. This is your time. Lord, would you have it? We offer this time up to you, and in your name we pray, amen. Oh man! So I'm gonna I'm gonna start off with a, a hot take. In my opinion, I'm one of those Christmas kind of people that starts listening to Christmas music at November first. I would do it. I would do it in July if I could. I love the Christmas season, and I love this time of year. I love when the leaves are falling off the trees, and when people are singing carols and the anticipation of, well, also the anxiety of trying to go to the family's house. You know, where are we going? Who are we going with? What am I getting? What's the budget? You know, that's my, how much, how much money do we have for gifts? What do the kids want? What are we getting the parents? Will they like that? All the fun stuff that the Christmas season comes around with, um, 
watching It's a Wonderful Life like a thousand times between now and Christmas. It's just a joy, the anticipation of fellowship and of being together, of family, of love. It's, it's, it's interesting. It's one, this is one of the only times I think, generally speaking, our culture enjoys anticipating something. We like the waiting. It, there's, there is a journey in the waiting for Christmas. And for us as Christians, as the church, we're anticipating Christ coming. That, that, the, the word, the churchy word is Advent, which just simply means coming. And that's what we're looking forward to. And the text we're looking at right now is a Christmas text. I love this text because it is a Christmas text. It speaks of God's perfect wisdom to salvation. It speaks to a fundamental aspect of Christian identity, of being a son of God. It's the burden of this text. Sons, that word is used six times. So it, it, by emphasis and repetition, Paul's trying to get across, hey, I'm talking about sonship here. I'm talking about what it means to be a child of God. And so if I could sum up in a word what this passage is about, if you could take one thing and put it in your pocket and walk out that door, it would be this, that God has redeemed us so that through adoption, we might live in the fullness of being a privileged child of God. That God has redeemed you to change your life as a child of God. This is an identity text. This is a text about what it means, the nuts and bolts of being a Christian. It's not just some legal declaration of, I'm righteous before God, so I can do whatever I want. No, this is, God has freed you for a purpose in an identity. There is a newness to your life, a fullness. And the Christmas season is this anticipation for all of redemptive history and for us, I was dead in my sin and God in love and his perfect time brought me over into his family and welcomed me at his kitchen table. That's the good news. So the, the outline is fairly simple. It's how does God make children of God? The privilege of being a child of God and then lastly, the response of a child of God. And just so you don't freak out, the first point's gonna be way longer than the other ones. So you're like, man, this guy's got a lot of minutes on the first one. We're gonna be here till five. That's not, hopefully not the case. So first, first point, how God makes children of God. Let's look at the text, verse four. Verse four, he makes them sovereignly. He makes them sovereignly. In the Father's sovereign wisdom. That phrase, in the fullness of time, God sent his son. So when I say sovereignty, very simple, I'm just saying that God, it is the complete and total control of God in all things. If God is worthy of being called God, if he's worthy of a capital G, he has to be in control of everything. And so sonship happens. Being a child of God happens because God decided it to be so. And he did so by sending Jesus at the perfect time and in the perfect way. 
And so when we look at the phrase, in the fullness of time, God sent his son, the, the, the Christmas phrase of the text, this is, this is a phrase that is full of Old Testament expectations. What we just heard from Jeremiah, the, the new covenant. What, what is, what is this, this time that's coming in the future that will have starts, hearts of stone that turn into hearts of flesh? Well, the, the Old Testament, God, God was working in the Old Testament and he was working slowly but surely to, to this climax of Jesus coming. And this has been a problem that's needed a solution from the start of time. In Genesis 1, I mean, think, think about create the creation account. We have God created the world from nothing by his word. He created everything, created man and woman, and it was wonderful in the garden. Everything was good. That's the word. It was very good. But Genesis 3, sin happens. And, and we read as a reader of Genesis, we go, oh no, sin has happened. But then we keep on reading and we realize, wait a minute, what happened with Adam and Eve, that's also impacted us. Everyone is impacted by sin. And we see story after story after story of people that are divided from God because of sin and God in his mercy and grace saving them. And the ultimate climax of God's redemptive work, again, is Jesus, sending Christ. God needed men, mankind needed a Messiah, needed a savior, needed someone other than themselves to save them from their sin. And so you read stories and is it, is it Noah? No, it's not Noah. Is it Abraham? No, it's not Abraham. What about his sons? Nope, not them. Joshua? Nope. King David? No. John the Baptist, no, Jesus, it was Jesus. And, it, and, and, and the, the, the thing about this phrase and the fullness of time, it's, it's not like God was waiting in, in, humanity's, in humanity's busy schedule to, oh, maybe okay, Jesus can slip in here. This text informs us that it is far more grand and far more detailed than that. God, in the fullness of time, in his perfect timing, sent his son. And there's a lot of things that we could say if we were sitting down and we were nerding about what, 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 could, what could be going on right now back then that Paul could be referencing. Could have been, you know, the Pax Romana, Roman peace or the Roman roads or common language and all that stuff. You know, well and good, profitable. But Paul doesn't mention those things. Paul doesn't go into the specifics and that's because you, us, we are meant to be encouraged by the larger picture that history, our salvation, the future, the particulars of your life, both on spiritual and geopolitical levels, are under the control of our loving God. And, and so many times we think that God's distant or that, man, this is a, this coronavirus, how could, how could God control this? Scripture teaches that the hearts of kings are like water in his hand, that he moves to and fro. And this was an encouraging quote from J.I. Packer. He says this, what God does in time, he planned from eternity. 
And all that he has planned in eternity, he carries out in time. And all that he has in his word committed himself to do will infallibly be done. That is our God. And he promised a Messiah and he has sent his Messiah. It was effective. It wasn't a failed mission. It was perfect. So our identity as children of God, be encouraged. This isn't just like you were, you were walking into Kroger or Publix, which I think is the best grocery store. It's not like you're walking in there and you just get a sticker when you walk in. Oh my goodness, I'm a child of God. You know? No, this was planned. This was orchestrated. This was God doing something that he decreed. But God doesn't just make sons through sovereign decree. He does so through his son. That's the cool comparison of this text. So encouraging. God makes sons through his son. He does so through Jesus. And we see three different phrases that I think are so important to get behind this idea. God sent his son. So our salvation is not because of man. It's because of God. Jesus is fully God. Son of God. God sent his son, not a created son, wasn't a man who uh, was passed the test. Hey, you live by the book of Proverbs. You obeyed Levitical law. You can ding, ding. You can, you can become God. No, God himself. This is God, a very God, eternal, not made. Jesus, who is one with the Father. And this is the best news. And this is a story of the Bible because we can't save ourselves. That is the news of the gospel. The stark, dark reality is that you can try all you want. But unless God has mercy on you, there is no hope. So Jesus is fully God, but we see that he's also fully man in this text. Look with me. Fully, fully man in the sense of born of a woman. Born of a woman, born under the law. So not just a a specter or a spirit that has the appearance of a man. Jesus was true flesh and blood. Fully God, fully man. 100%, 100%. He needed sleep. He needed food. He needed a break. He, he, he depended on his heavenly father for spiritual nourishment. It's profound. And this is good news for us. And this is the other side of the gospel. That we need God to save us. But it is not God who stands condemned before God. It is man. It is man that stands be- condemned before God. This next phrase, born under the law born under the law. This speaks to Jesus's righteousness. So fully God, fully man, fully righteous. And this should be sending off amber alerts in all of our heads because I can't live under the law. You can't live under the law. No one can live under the law. It's not like, again, church membership or, or being a Christian is like, okay, well, I'm visiting, I'm visiting Kingsway and there's members here. So I guess those are the people that have it together. And then I'm over here and I, I'm, I'm really bad at keeping God's law. That's not the case. That's not the case. That's not what scripture, we are all here covenanting together because God did a work in our lives because God was kind to us. That is the only reason why we're gathered singing happy, joyful in the gospel. And we find that under God's law, we stand condemned. And Paul makes it clear in Galatians. This is actually, turn with me to Galatians 2 verse 16. 
he makes it very clear. It's either by your works or it's by faith. And faith being just a trust and dependence upon God for your work on your behalf. And in Galatians 2 verse 16, Paul says this, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Catch this. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. That is everyone. That is everyone apart from Christ. We have a hopeless eternity and we have a stark reality before God if we try to plea our works before our creator. Imagine a table in front of us, in front of you, and and in front of this table, all the things that could condemn you before God and all the things that can exonerate you before God. And you're before the Lord and you're trying to make your case. If there is anything on that table, anything that condemns you, your toast. And the best of works that you think you have are but filthy rags. If we, as, this is the, this is the, this is so simple. Christian gospel is I see this table and I, I, I go over here and I grab the cross of Christ, bloody and rugged, and I throw that on the table. I say, this is my plea, Jesus Christ and nothing else. Because by faith, I trust in this man, the God man, by faith, I'm trusting in his work on my behalf because my works are not enough. My, 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 I think I've, I've sinned since I was a little kid. I, I know, I know it, I know it. Um, I'm done. John Stott says this about this text. Absolute money. And he was born under the law. That is of a Jewish mother into a Jewish nation subject to the Jewish law. Throughout his life, he submitted to all the requirements of the law. He succeeded where all others before and since have failed. He perfectly fulfilled the righteousness of the law. So the divinity of Christ, what we talked about, the humanity of Christ and the righteousness of Christ uniquely qualified him to be man's redeemer. If he had not been man, he could not have redeemed men. If he had not been a righteous man, he could not have redeemed unrighteous men. And if he had not been God's son, he could not have redeemed men for God or made them sons of God. That's the Christmas text, guys. That's the good news that we're celebrating. When we gather around the Christmas tree and we're watching It's a Wonderful Life and we're, you know, eating whatever Christmas foods we're eating, we're thinking about Jesus man, I am living the good life. Not because I've got material blessings. Not because my family's here or my family isn't here. Not because my job's doing well or it isn't doing well. Not because I have money in the bank or that I am poor. Not because I'm emotionally secure or I'm not. I am happy because I am happy in the Lord. So Christ came as a man to represent man who stood condemned before God. Two things about the law, just in general, put this in your pocket for later, a little aside. The law, two things it's supposed to show you. A couple things it could show you, two things. First thing, 
You're, you can't measure up to God's standard. It's supposed to show you God's standard. That's the first thing. But the second thing is this. It was never meant to be salvific. Obeying God's law was never meant to save you. It was meant to be, amongst other things, to be a teacher for us, to reveal our need of a savior, not our ability to save ourselves. So God saves us through Jesus, but how does he do it? Do we look at Jesus's example and then we just go, all right, okay, well, Jesus had lunch with sinners, so I need to make sure I have lunch with sinners on my calendar. Or Jesus said, give to Caesar what's Caesar's. So I'm gonna go on an archeological dig, find everything that belonged to Caesar and then somehow give it to him. Is it following the example? Is it by living by, living by the Sermon on the Mount, quoting that to people, just smiling, um, shoving emotions deep down in our soul and not dealing with it, just kind of giving the appearance of having it all together? Is that how we're redeemed? Galatians, again, is it by your works or is it by faith? Is it by works or by faith? God saves us through Christ by redemption. Look at verse five, to redeem those under the law. Who's under the law? We're under the law. All of us, we're under the law of God. And when we hear the word redemption, that's a marketplace term. Think, it means that you are freed through payment of a price. That's, so redemption means freedom through payment of a price. Think about prisoner of war. Think about criminals. Think about, yeah, slaves. Think about, think about a horrible situation. That's, that's what we're talking about here. Now, I want you to think also about the Old Testament. Think about that word redemption. Think about being freed. Think about being imprisoned. The greatest story in the Old Testament the Exodus. Think about the Hebrew people stuck in Egypt and God frees them. That's, that's the idea. This, this word, redemption, is, it's not just a New Testament word. It's a Bible word. God's used this word before. God's people have heard this word before. They're familiar with it. And so there's no greater example of slavery. There's no greater example of God's power. Look at this. The Passover lamb or the firstborn son. You can sacrifice your firstborn son or you can have a lamb and put it over by your works or by faith through the sacrifice and freedom of another, having someone else plea your case. It was also notable just like this text. Did Jesus, no, excuse me, did God, the God of Israel, did he free the Hebrew people from Egypt, and then period. Was that it? No. Here, here, here you go, out of Egypt, here, and here's a wilderness. Congratulations, you're free. No. Everybody knows that Abraham's promise, there's a land. We're going to a land. It was a deliverance from to. Same thing with this text. From to. So when I talk to people about the Christian faith, when we are sharing the gospel, we're talking in those categories. God has delivered us from sin to God in Christ. 
Deliverance from what, though, is typically the question that we land on and we, we ponder about. What, what is God delivering us from? Is it from financial hardships to abundance? From physical or material hardships to prosperity? Maybe it's from, emo- I, this, one, this one hit home, emotional instability to adulting over here, having it all together. Loneliness to a circumstance or a place in life where you hold the authority, where you hold the scepter, where you get to call the shots, where you're the victor in every situation? Is that what it means to be saved? That, that you get to be the bully on the block? Of course, you would be the gracious bully. I would be the gracious bully. Is it to a platform and a position of influence? Is that what God's saving us to? It's far more simple, but it's far more grand. God saves us from sin to himself. From sin to himself. From slavery to sonship. From sin to God. From a cruel and abusive master. From a state of being an enemy of God to the loving arms of a father who is your father and also almighty God. Your father is God if by faith you believe. So how did he redeem us? By taking our place, by taking our place, by living the life we couldn't live, what Caleb could not do in living, Christ did it for me. The death that I deserved, I deserved to be on that cross. But God, in the fullness of time, sent his son so that I wouldn't have to. My sins put him on that cross and then somehow I end up at the kitchen table of God? That's Christmas. Christ is our sin-bearing, wrath-appeasing, sacrificial substitute for us. John Stott says this of the work of Christ. Um, He said that it is God himself sending himself to save us from himself. It's all of grace, church. It is all of grace that we are saved. Donald McLeod says this, and I, again, this is, this is one to print out and just read over and over again. He says this about how Christ redeems us. It was the death of Christ between the third and the ninth hour of, on Good Friday, just outside of Jerusalem, not his teaching, not his example, not the social impact of his message, not the changed lives of his followers, but the sacrificial shedding of his blood as a great climactic act of worship, obedience, and self-surrender. That blood, a great atoning moment, the like of which had never occurred before and which never needed to be repeated. Amen. Was the price that set the slaves, the prisoners, and the doomed free. So that, I love that word in this text, Christ dying in your place makes sonship possible. God has delivered us from sin to God. I mean, our lives apart from Christ. It isn't like, oh, you guys, Christians have Jesus and I have Xbox and my, my retirement account and my job that's fulfilling or my girlfriend or my boyfriend, whatever it is. 
There, you are in Christ or you're not. You are in sin, in slavery to sin. That's really the, that's it. Sin is bad because it hurts people. It hurts you. And we're in a jail cell, four by four. We're getting cold oatmeal, if that. No light, no exercise, no stretching. It is, it is the worst. We're isolated, alone. And then we get to come over here. God opens up that cell. He drags you out. He says, hey, check this out. Check this out. I, I'm adopting you. You're a son of mine. Come, come sit at the table. Come sit at the table. We move from isolation to family, to fellowship. What we're enjoying right now, Christian, look at me. What we're enjoying right now, you're sitting next to Christians. That is a fruit of this text. You move from isolation to fellowship. You are enjoying brotherly love with Christians because God did a work in your life. It wasn't just some administrative nonprofit feat to get people in a room to hang out. This was God's grace to us. So how does he do it? What, what else does he do? I just, just keep on asking that question about this text and it keeps on giving and giving and giving like Christmas. He does so through adoption. He does so through adoption. Verse five, so that, so that we might receive adoption as sons. This differs from justification or regeneration, which are two, you know, $10 church words. Justification merely means a legal declaration of being righteous. I'm not righteous. Again, that table in front of me, I'm not righteous, but I've been declared righteous because Jesus is my substitute. He redeemed me. Legal declaration. Adoption is very similar to that. We are legally declared to be a son of God. And redemption, or excuse me, regeneration is the idea of exactly what we read in Jeremiah, that our hearts of stone turn into a heart of flesh. And so it is a life change. It is, there, there is a new reality. And that is like adoption. So we're legally declared to be children of God, but there's also a legitimate life change. We're characteristically different as Christians, because of a simple faith in God. And this, this, this is, I need you to notice this. God is not father because of creation. Like mankind, he's the father of mankind. No, that's not what this text says. There's, there are slaves and there are sons. You're either, everyone's a slave to sin, and then by faith, through adoption, you're a son of God. We, don't, we have a privileged position as Christians to call God Father. No one else gets this. No one else gets this privilege. My dad is my dad. He's not your dad. He's my dad. And so often we can also fall into this trap of thinking that God is our Father because of other reasons. And this is, I can see how people get here, but this is incredibly dangerous to get to this position. The fatherhood creation, amen, all there. Well, you know, Jimmy John or whoever I'm talking to, why, why would you be saved? Well, I'm saved because, well, my, 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 dad's a, my dad's a Christian, so I'm a Christian. Well, my grandma, 
she was, she was a devout Christian. If you met my grandma, she like devotions all day. So I'm a Christian. Or I, I, said, I said a prayer or I was baptized. So I think I'm good. I think I have it covered. When it comes to your parents' faith or your grandparents' faith, God, God doesn't have grandchildren. He has children through adoption because you chose Jesus' works over your own. Baptism doesn't save you. If I had, remember the table, think about that table. If I had things that condemn me, things that exonerate me, hey, I got baptized. Not gonna do it, guys. My grandma's faith, you wanna plea your grandma's faith. I, the only plea that I want is God himself because that's my only hope. The next phrase, assured by the spirit, that's not a phrase, that's just my, another, another way that we see adoption happen is by the assurance of the spirit, excuse me. Verse six, and because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. Now, the takeaway for this verse, I want you to know, it's not, this isn't like a order of salvation thing. All right, when you do your, because again, it's not by works, it's by faith. So it's not like, okay, you believe and then God's gonna send himself over here and then you're, gonna, you're good to go. All you gotta do is start the engine, God's gonna drive the car. That's not at all what's being said here. Paul's trying to put emphasis on something. He's trying to encourage you because maybe you're sitting here, this is my inclination, when you read this text, you're like, well, good for them. Well, good, 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 for, good for children of God, you know? Like, and good, good for people that, that hear the Holy Spirit in their heart, Abba, Father. This is meant to encourage you that, there, that we, in our person, know by the inner work of God that we are children of God. And maybe you're sitting there in your Christmas season, you're just like overwhelmed by life. And I think that's all of us in some area some facet, there is something that is just eating at us. The gospel's too, that's too good to be true. It could, that, I could see how that could maybe apply to my pastor, but not for me. That's too good. This text is for you, Christian. This, again, is the good news. That we are saved, legally declared, and there's a new lifestyle, a new, a new characteristic to our life but we're assured by God's spirit that dwells deeply in us. Ephesians 1 speaks about how it is the seal of our inheritance. Every Christian, there's not, there's not a, just like children, there's no, there's no outsiders to the, the, the family of God. There's not like, okay, yeah, here's all my children, children of God, and we got some of them sitting outside because they're not my favorite. Everyone's sitting at the table of God. Every Christian gets the spirit. Every, everybody, everybody that believes by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ receives the Holy Spirit. You get the inheritance of God himself. And in your darkest nights, when you're up late or you're worried about something at work or you're struggling internally, God, even there, is with you. Let's move on to point two. Like, oh my. The privilege of being a child of God. Privilege of being a child of God. 
in a word, being a child of God is a new identity. It's a change of direction. It's a change in privilege, a new motive, a new destiny, a new future, and a reward. Our reward for our works is condemnation, a Christless eternity. That's what you deserve by your works. But that's the reward. But in Christ, our reward is God himself through his spirit for all eternity. We move from slaves to sons. My, this is a definition for sonship. And it's kind of, it's not long, but I wrote it because I needed encouragement. When I, wrote, when I read this text, I was like, I, I need to be, what, what does it mean to be a son of God? To be a son of God is the identity of every Christian that they are by adoption children of God. Being viewed as if they are blood relatives of God and given the rights, the privileges, the honor, and the inheritance of a firstborn son. Take a picture of that and, and, and encourage yourself when your heart is cold, when your heart is discouraged. That is how God looks at you because it's not by your works. When we sin, it, our plea is Christ. Our plea is Christ, not my works. But so often we can, be, we can lack confidence and courage to go before our Father because it sounds too good to be true. And this is also a point, not just for guys. I don't know if ladies, if you're feeling this, you're like, okay, firstborn, good for them. <laughs> good, for, good for the guys, firstborn sons. The, the point of this phrase is to show the privilege of a, back, back, back in that time, it was the firstborn. The firstborn had responsibilities to take care of parents, but they also, in turn, for the responsibility, they also got double honor. So this isn't like there's one firstborn son in God's family. Everyone is treated as if they are a firstborn son. Unheard of. Men and women alike, every Christian this is your state. So the response of children of God, you are no longer slaves, but sons. And if sons, heirs through God. Last point. I love this because it shows that Christians, because God has done something in us, we respond. It's effective. What God has done in our life has stirred us it, we're not in the sale anymore. The cell anymore. We're, we're, when we're at the table, we don't. Oh man, hey, this is great dinner. If I could just be back, I could be back in my jail cell at seven, seven o'clock. I thought maybe I'd just sit in darkness for a minute, and you know, for the rest of the night. That's not. That's not how we we live a new life because of adoption. And I love this last, the last phrase. Love the last phrase. Read with me. Verse seven, so if you are, you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through works. Oh, wait a minute. Oh, wait a minute. Through God. Through God. Again, Paul makes it abundantly clear. Christian, you are a Christian. You are saved. You are enjoying the good life because God has been gracious to you. So our response is a spirit of gratefulness, a spirit of gratefulness. 
It is by the grace and mercy of God that we are sons of God. Martin Luther says this, I love this. He says like the only, the only thing that I bring to the table of my salvation is the sin that required it. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> Enough said. Isn't our God wonderful? And so the, the, the reality of this and the fullness of time that God would be so kind to send Jesus to save us, that we would live in this age where we get to enjoy hearts of flesh and not hearts of stone, that we can look back at the cross and say, what a wonderful work God's done. Let's take that from the greater and move to the lesser. If, that, if God can do that to that degree, Christian, sitting here, how much more can he do this in your life right now? Whatever you're going through, if God can move heaven and earth and save you from your sins, he is with you in your trials. The question often asked when we suffer Behind, when, we, when we ask the why questions, typically it's, can, can God be trusted? Can I trust God for this? Spurgeon says this about our heavenly father. He is too wise to err and too good to be unkind. In the Heidelberg Catechism in answer 26, it says this, for those suffering, please let this wash over you. Whatever evil he sends upon me in this veil of tears, he will turn to my good. For he is able to do it, being almighty God, and willing also, being a faithful father. Another point that we could take away real quickly is that we could act like sons. I mean, that's an obvious implication of this text, that we would act like sons. God has not saved you to hate you, but to love you. I think so often we can get in that trap that, man, God's just not happy with me. No, God has moved heaven and earth to save you, to bless you, to be with you, to fellowship with you. Not for you to sit outside or to go back to your gig of being a slave to sin, but to sit and to live in the fullness of of our union with Christ. When I come home from work, my son Porter, two years old, he'll sometimes be strapped in his chair so he can't run away. Um, and he'll be eating spaghetti. And, and he'll, it's, it's, guys, it'll melt your heart. He'll go, daddy. And I go, Porter. And then he goes, daddy. And it's just like, we go back and forth. And Christy's like, please stop talking. Like, this is getting weird. Um, but he'll have spaghetti on his face. And he wants, he wants dad. Throws his arms out. Spaghetti everywhere. And I'm not just really nice, but I, I, do, I, I would not like to clean my shirt. That would, that'd be one thing I'd like. Do I, do I demand that he clean up? Is that the first thing that runs through my head when I see my little boy? I run over and I kiss my son because I love him, because he's my son. And that, all the, God has cleaned us and there's no spaghetti on our face because of Jesus. <laughs> like all, all the caveats. God loves us. God loves us. He anticipates looking forward to seeing us. And we can boldly approach our God. Tom Schreiner, um, a pastor in Louisville and a dear professor of mine when I was in school, he said that all the New Testament can be summed up in three phrases. That God is sovereign, 
that God is merciful, that God is worthy of praise. And we can clearly see that in this text. I'm gonna end with, I was listening to Christmas carols this morning. I thought this was so fitting. God rest ye merry gentlemen. Let nothing you dismay. Remember Christ our Savior was born on Christmas Day to save us all from Satan's power when we were gone astray. O tidings of comfort and joy. Let's pray. Lord, you are our comfort and joy. You are our deepest source of joy. And we are grateful that we can call you Father. And Lord, within our spirit, your spirit resides, resounding with ours, assuring us of our future inheritance. We thank you for Christ. We thank you of this great salvation that you have saved us into, that it is by faith, by grace, and not through our works. And we thank you for this privileged position of being a son of God. Help us to realize this and to live in the good of this and the fullness of this. It's in your name we pray. Amen.